This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. If you've been listening to this podcast lately, you may have heard our discussion of how Minneapolis became the world center of flour milling starting in the late 1800s. So today, we're going to be talking about the state's other industrial feat that occurred around this same time. And I would say that it's this is something that's less discussed today. And I'm talking about lumber milling. Minnesota's extensive white pine forests made it the top lumber market in the world by 1905. Did you know that? I didn't know that until recently. (laughs) But moving thousands of logs was no easy job in the days before railroads and automobiles. So reader John Bostrom wanted to know more about the logistics of how this booming industry worked. Today we're talking to Krista Lawler, who is based out of our Duluth Bureau and wrote the story on this topic for Curious Minnesota. A quick programming note, I will be getting married this week and then going on my honeymoon next week. So we are going to be taking a brief hiatus here on the podcast and we'll be back in late September. Okay, here's John. I was listening to a podcast recently about the construction of the Roebling Delaware Aqueduct. So this is a bridge over the Delaware River in in Pennsylvania. This bridge was built because logging rafts on the river were making it perilous for, for boats to go across the Delaware River. So this got me thinking more generally about the transportation of timber products. I wondered how the logging industry went about transporting their products before the advent of roads and large trucks, especially here in Minnesota. Thanks so much for taking my question. Well, Krista, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, we love our superlatives here at Curious Minnesota. We love to give our listeners something that they can go to their friends and say, did you know we were the best, the biggest, the largest, the the, number one, et cetera. And here we've got a great one for them, which is that we were the number one lumber market in the world, in the world by 1905. Uh, It's like, it it sort of plays second fiddle to our flour milling story in Minnesota, but it's like a very important important story. I feel like it kind of gets under told. So here we are to tell it today. Um, so thank you so much for coming. Thanks for writing this story. It's such an interesting history. Where, where should we sort of begin this? I mean, we have to introduce why Why would we here in Minnesota become the number one lumber market in the world? What's so special about early Minnesota that would lead us to that fact? Right. So uh, the area that became Minnesota was more than half covered with forest, uh, 31.5 million acres of it before it was even Minnesota. So this became a place where lumber could become big business. It was filled with white pine. And and white pine is in high demand, right? I mean, it's a very usable material. Right. It's very versatile. It's cheap. You can use it to make, you know, anything. Okay. So before we get into the details, we should we should talk about this quote from Richard Lewis Griffin. Uh, and we should note that the Minnesota Historical Society also, like they highlight this Richard Lewis Griffin quote. We don't know exactly who Mr. Griffin is, but suffice it to say, he saw these things and he was around during uh, the 1890s. But he has this description of the forests that is hard not to use in a story like this. So what did Mr. Griffin say? He said, as I stood upon the brow of Embarrass Hill, one of the grandest sights I ever looked upon was in view, a veritable ocean of pine. 
And there's no other details about Richard Lewis Griffin. So his claim to fame is that he said this really picturesque sentence, you know, in the 1890s and someone wrote it down. (laughs) And and we're writers. How could we not sort of latch on to the words ocean of pine? It was even the headline of this story. We we liked it so much. Uh, Okay. And, and, so for our listeners, they should understand this ocean of pine doesn't really exist today. We'll talk about some instances where it does still exist. But for the most part, this forest is is not around, unfortunately. But let's talk about why. So wh- where does this story begin? When when does it begin um, and sort of where? Because it actually doesn't be you're in the Duluth Bureau. It doesn't begin in the Northwoods, which was sort of surprising to me. Um, so wh- where do we begin this whole story? Okay, so this all started closer to Minneapolis. The government built the the first sawmill at the convergence of the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers in 1821, but it would still be, you know, 15 years before the first commercial mill was built at Marine on St. Croix. Okay, and we're talking about basically the Twin Cities area then is where this all begins. Right. It, It wouldn't move north for decades. Okay. And so there's a lot of land in Minnesota, but there were native people living on this land. And we're talking about this. I mean, we're we're talking about like 1830s period here and sort of early history. So what what happens that, you know, loggers are able to come in and start pulling down trees across the state? So the lumber industry um, was really heavily involved with treaties and they took land from Native Americans living in the area. And then the lumber industry took off from there. So there's a white pine treaty of 1837 that sort of kicked things off commercially. Okay. And that sort of helped fuel the the industry's growth. Right. And so this is the the US government signing these treaties, right, with Native Americans? Right, right. Okay. But US the lumber industry is sort of behind the scenes kind of helping orchestrate some of this. Right. They're pushing it. Yep. Okay. When this question first came in, it was really about transportation of lumber. And I kind of thought maybe that was a little narrow. But when you start to break down what these lumberjacks were doing to get trees from the forest to a mill to market, it's quite unbelievable. And I encourage people to look at the photos on this story because it's really, uh, it really helps tell that tale. But let's, let's, let's start from what, what, what is it like to be a lumberjack during this period? How do they work and how are they getting trees from the forest to, you know, a milled piece of lumber? Right. So this is really rugged work, obviously. And they're setting up shanties along the rivers, these kind of very temporary housing and lumberjacks are known to kind of move around a lot. So, um, um, you know, they're bringing bed bugs and lice with them and they're working really hard, long hours, dangerous work and getting paid. Not great, but mm-hmm. they're also not spending any money. So it's fine for them. Okay. But you could have, you know, 30 guys sleeping in a single shack. OK. And so well, there's sort of two parts to this transportation picture. So let's start with it's wintertime in Minnesota. This is pre-Gore-Tex, pre, uh, you know, nice gloves. I mean, like if I didn't have nice gloves in Minnesota, I don't know what I would do. And you look at these pictures and clearly I don't know how these guys were getting through it. But so it's winter Minnesota. What is the lumber industry doing in the wintertime? OK, so this was really interesting to me. I had no idea that logging was a winter business. So but it had to happen in the winter so that they could move 
the logs on icy roads. This was the kind of my point of entry to the story. And this is fascinating. So what they would do is dig ruts in the road and then put these sleighs loaded with tons of wood. And then uh, horses would pull them to the shore of the Mm -hmm. rivers. And then you have a guy who's kind of in front of it. And, you know, if things start getting out of control, he's throwing down hay into these ruts to slow things down. This is super dangerous work. Right. Because there's a there's a quote here in the story from someone who who was a former logging camp worker who wrote a book uh, about early lumbering. And he just had this quote, he says, when the logging road had a steep downgrade, it was quite a trick to prevent the load from going too fast, which would either dump the load or kill the horses or both. And you can just imagine, I mean, and just to give some perspective, like one of the pictures on the story, there's logs piled 21 feet high uh, on a sleigh. So that would be quite a catastrophe if that kind of got loose. I love that quote. And that guy was considered a road monkey. So all these guys had kind of strange job titles. Okay. these that That's the person putting the hay in the ruts and stuff like that? Right. That's the road monkey. Okay. So they they take, it's wintertime. They take these things down. They, they go through this whole process to move them to market. And I should say, clearly they understood how interesting this was because there's a lot of pictures of these guys standing next to massive piles of wood on these sleighs. Uh, <laughs> right. Such because stoic it was pretty men. cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was <laughs> like, they understood that was quite a feat. So, but it's still not to market yet. It's still uh, just sort of, you know, on the banks of a river. So then what happens? So then the spring thaw happens and they load the logs into the water and take advantage of this flow to move them towards sawmills along the river. And did they just push them off and meet them back at the mill on the other end? (laughs) They did not. This was like a whole city's worth of people moving along with it. And you had men standing on the logs. You had a Wanigan where a cook would be um, preparing meals, like full meals for these people. This is a floating Um, shack, right? Floating shack, right. Um, There are men along the sides of the banks to help with log jams. Okay. Because Um, yeah, like a log jam would basically clog the whole river essentially. Right. And we have a great photo of this too, of a, of a Wanigan floating on the Mississippi in the 1880s. And it is, it's basically a house with, with a little porch on the front of it and right. floating along with these logs. Yeah. I mean, in the picture, all these lumberjacks are standing out posing for a photo in front of their <laughs> Wanigan. Again, like they clearly, like someone was like, this is cool. There's, <laughs> there's a lot to take a picture of here. This has got to be preserved forever. Right. Um, okay. So you're in the Duluth Bureau and eventually this story moves to the Northwoods, which is more what we associate the lumber industry with today. So how does that transition happening and, and, and when? For sure. So it happened toward the end of the century. Um, The woods in the original areas had been depleted. So business moved to the north um, and then they would be using the St. Louis River um, to move logs. Okay. And so were there sort of certain cities and places where, you know, they were sort of going to for more new forests and things like that? Right. So Duluth, uh, Cloquet, International Falls, that area. Okay. And and so was this partly also like, I mean, at this point, when we get to the late 1800s, are they still having to float everything down the river or is there other things helping or is it kind right. of a mixture? Technology had improved. Now there were commercial trains, steam power, and uh, they had improved cutting technology. So they everything wasn't so by hand. Okay. 
but it seems like the rivers were still, I mean, were they still a factor at that point? Or they were just all yes. trains. Okay. They, they were still a factor. Yes. Okay. And as uh, you know, we've discussed other sort of industrial Minnesota feats that uh, like the flour milling on this podcast. And with any of these stories, we have to talk about the decline. We have the apex in 1905, but then there is the decline. So what happened? We were number one by 1905. Why didn't we stay number one? Right. Uh, the trees were gone. Okay. That seemed an <laughs> impossibility. As that, huh? When there was that veritable ocean of pine, it, it seemed an impossibility that you could get through all of that, but it happened. I mean, it was, you know, it was a lifetime worth of industry. I mean, it lasted, you know, some people would never know a world where lumber wasn't big business in Minnesota, but right. you know, in the dawn of the 20th century, things changed. And by the early thir- 1930s, less than 3% of the workforce remained. Okay. Um, and then it, we, we, you write in the story that the Virginia and Rainy Lake Lumber Company, which is this huge lumber operation in Virginia, Minnesota, that they closed in 1929. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the, that's sort of the end mark in a sense of the industry. Right. And at that point, 68 billion board feet of pine had been logged from the state's forests. Wow. And so just to clarify, I mean, there still is a lumber industry in Minnesota, but they're just not a pine industry. Right. It's more hardwoods like oak and aspen. Okay. So listeners listening to this, maybe they're they're just imagining, oh, what must have this have been like? Uh, the, this white pine, it sounds fascinating. I'd love, I wish I could go back in time and see it. Well, can. They, they can. Yeah. Where can they go to, see, to get a glimpse of what, what it used to be like? Uh, the Lost 40, which is something that I wish I would have been able to dig into, but this story was already so intense. Um, the Lost 40 is about two hours from Duluth out near, you know, beyond Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 40 acres of white pine that because of a mapping error uh, was never touched. So you can go in there now and see 200, 300 year old white pine mm. in this. Uh, you can take a, there's a mile long path through it and you can literally hug a tree. Wow. Okay. Hug an old school tree. So if listeners want to go sort of recreate the vibe of this story, they can go, they can go to the lost 40 and check that out. Right. Okay. Well, cool. Well, Krista, thank you so much. This is super interesting. I mean, again, like I didn't know, I feel like the flour milling history of this state gets a pretty big reputation um, and we still talk about it. But a lot of that milling, you know, when we, when we talk about the mill city, I mean, that, re- that milling for us really began with saw milling and, and lumber. And I feel like that history doesn't get told as much for some reason. Right. And it, this was just before that. And when the sawmills closed, it kind of opened up the flour mills. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. What a fascinating story. Thank you. I jumped in here and found so many rabbit holes that I could have written a book about it. <laughs> yeah. And I do encourage listeners to, uh, we'll put a link to the story in the show notes, because this is one of those visual things where it's hard to imagine, like, look, I don't know. It's hard to sort of uh, describe some of just the vastness of the trees that are in some of these pictures. And uh, so I encourage people to, if I haven't already sold you on the pictures yet, <laughs> I encourage you to go check it out. Um, so great. Well, thanks so much, Krista. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today's show. As always, we want to hear your questions and feedback at curious at startribune.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please tell a friend about it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious. 